I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's fascinating past with our country's leading historians and thought leaders. Yesterday, I cross-examined David Brooks, author of The Second Mountain, which right now is number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. His book just came out on April 16th. We did the program at an event sponsored by the Shackelford Law Firm, SMU Cox School of Business, and the Trammell and Margaret Crow Foundation in front of a live audience in Dallas on April 25th. Enjoy. I think we've done six of these events since Matt Myers became the dean of the Cox School. This is the first one he's made, so it's special <laughs> to have Matt Myers here on behalf of SMU Cox. What a great thrill it is for all of us to be here with David Brooks. David, as you know, is the leading columnist for the New York Times, PBS, Shields. He wants it to be Brooks Shields, but it's Shields Brook. Uh, on PBS News every Friday, uh, best-selling author, all-around fantastic person. Please welcome David Brooks. Now, David, people want to know about this new book. By the way, he told me yesterday, it's number one, New York Times, it has passed Michelle Obama. (laughs) So some people in this room know a little bit about it. Some people may not know anything about it. So let's kind of lay a foundation. You say in the book that in American society these days, there are two moral ecologies that you call the first mountain and the second mountain. So describe the moral ecology on each mountain. First, let me um, say how pleased I am to be here with Talmadge. This has been a shocking morning. I had no idea Talmadge had this many friends. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like you to raise your hand if you're an actor paid by Harlan to be here. (laughs) Uh, So first, let me describe what a moral ecology is, because it allows me to talk about a friend of mine who was a mentor to me and who started here in Dallas. And I worked for uh, Jim Lehrer for the first 10 years of my career. Share around so everybody yeah, this. And uh, so when, if you, and in Rose Lehrer, when he's on the air, he's very reticent. But when he's off the air, he's very expressive. He's a Marine. He drinks a bit. He curses a bit. Uh, and when the camera's not on him, his face reacts. And so I was a junior pundit uh, 18 years ago. And every time I said something he really liked, his eyes would crinkle in pleasure. And every time I said something crass, his mouth would turn down in displeasure. And so um, I'd spent 10 years just trying to get the eye crinkle and avoid the mouth downturn. And that's how mentors sometimes work. He never said anything to me. It was just how he reacted that taught me how to be. And he did that to a lot of people. So even though he's been retired for six or seven years, the news hour is still Jim Lehrer's culture. And there are different cultures that shape how you're supposed to behave. And in the 50s, we uh, had a culture that was very communal. Uh, and, uh, it, and it was, if you lived in Chicago, you said, I'm from 59th and Pulaski, because your, your neighborhood was right there. And we found that eventually too uh, confining. And so we shifted over to an individualistic culture. And the shift was represented to me in the 1969 Super Bowl, Super Bowl three, where there were two quarterbacks on the field. One was Johnny Unitas, a very 1950s kind of guy, crew cut, boring, very team oriented. And the other was Johnny, uh, was Joe Namath, born in the same central western Pennsylvania town, but 10 years later. And Namath was very individualistic. 
Uh, and uh, he wrote a memoir called I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow Because I Get Better Looking Every Day. Uh, <laughs> and so we shifted from community to individualism. And the culture of the first mountain is individualism. It's I can make myself happy. Life is an individual journey. I am fulfilled by my career. And in my experience, we're all probably recently successful in this room. Career success does not lead to fulfillment. In my experience, career success leads to, it helps you avoid the shame you might feel if you felt yourself a failure, but it gives you no positive good. So if you get to the top of that first mountain of career success driven by ego, and it's unsatisfying. And so you fall down in the valley and you think, what am I really gonna do with my life? Why was I really called to be here? And you fall deep into yourself and into the desires of your heart and soul, the desires to merge with other people and to serve some good. And then you're ready for the second mountain, which is the first mountain is about acquisition. The second mountain is about contribution. First mountain is about rising up. The second mountain is about reaching down and helping others. And so the second mountain sometimes means shifting your job, sometimes means staying in your job, but making it about relationship and not about self. Mm -hmm. So once you had this important concept going forward, as you get to know new people, What's your process for kind of sizing them up as to whether you think they're first mountain people or second mountain people? <laughs> uh, if there were, no, I'm not going to make a Talmud joke. <laughs> you know, I, I work for a guy, I work part-time now at the Aspen Institute. And I work for a guy named Dan Porterfield, who's our new CEO. And everybody loves that guy. And because he genuinely cares about other people more than himself. And he conducts himself in the work with just a warmth and service. And I've done a bunch of panels with him. And he always makes me the star. And when I see that guy, that guy's a second mountain guy. He's making other people the star. Uh, And, you know, I tell the story in the book of a hospital janitor named Luke. And Luke was was a guy who cleans rooms. And he cleaned the room of some kid who got in a a fight and slipped into a coma that he was not coming out of. And... um, he cleaned the room every day, and every day his father sat vigil with the kid. And one day he cleaned the room, and uh, Luke, uh, the father was out, getting a smoke. And Luke cleaned the room. Uh, and then the, but the father accosted him later in the day and said, you didn't clean my son's room. The first mountain response is to say, I did clean your room, because my job is cleaning rooms, but you were out getting a smoke. The second mountain response is to say, my job is to comfort patients and their families. In that case, you would clean the room again so the father could have the comfort of seeing you clean it. And that's what Luke did. One other quick story about somebody we admire more than anybody else maybe. Abraham Lincoln, president, he needed a general to fight to actually take the battle forward. So he went to the home of General McClellan to try to urge him to be more aggressive. And he got there, he arrived in the parlor, McClellan was out, he sat in the parlor, but they said McClellan's coming right back. McClellan walked up the stairs, did not say hi to President Lincoln, walked up to his bedroom, and the butler said, General McClellan will be right down. And Lincoln sat there, and 45 minutes later, the butler said, General McClellan has decided to retire for the night. And John Hay, whose assistant was with Lincoln, said he was outraged. How who dares treat the President of the United States like this? And Lincoln said, this is not about niceties. This is about getting the job done. So his ego was not on the line. He had submerged himself to the cause of the war. 
And that's another example of someone who's definitely on their second mountain. Mm -hmm. Let's go a little deeper on the first mountain, since that seems to be where too many people are these days. You say that we have a crisis of connection and that our rampant individualism is a catastrophe. So describe that crisis and catastrophe. Yeah, well, so for me, it was just, I had turned into, um, my kids had left. That was a bigger shock than I expected when my kids left for college. Because so much of my life had been organized around that. And suddenly I lost, like, I missed just the 15-second encounters in the hallway. And that, that, it was really a very hard moment, and my marriage had ended, and I was just working all the time. So that was a, I was disconnected. And I'm like a professional communicator, but I was not communicating well with the people around me. Not really out of my heart. And, but I I'm, I'm, was not alone. I, I said last night that when something happens to me, it often happens to a lot of other people. And the secret to my career success is that I'm a very average person with above average communication skills. And so a lot of things happening. And if you look around the country, we are having a crisis of, of disconnection and separation. Uh, the number of people who say nobody knows them well is 55%. 35% of people over, seven, over 45 say they're chronically lonely. The suicide rate has gone up 30% in the last uh, 30 years. The teenage suicide in the last 12 years has gone up 70%, 70%. Depression rates are skyrocketing. Mental health facilities in every college I go to are swamped. Uh, if you ask people, do you trust your neighbors, only 32% of Americans say they trust their neighbors, only 19% of millennials. And so everywhere I go, I was at uh, Goldman Sachs the other day. I talk about the suicide rate a lot. And a guy came up to me and said, yeah, I lost my son. This happens to me constantly. And so what we see is the, we see the, the depression. We see the suicide. We see 72,000 Americans dying of opiate addiction every year. I mean, this is twice as many people buying, dying of suicide and opiate addiction every year as died during the entire Vietnam War. And so this manifests itself as just anger and pain and eventually tribalism. And so to me, I cover every issue I cover in politics and society gets down to the breakdown of our social fabric, the fact that we just don't treat each other very well anymore. Mm-hmm. Now getting to the second mountain, you say that People who, there, who are on the second mountain have made commitments to at least one of four different areas. Vocation, spouse slash family, faith slash philosophy, and community slash nation. So do the people at the top of the second mountain make commitments to all four? Not necessarily. Some only do one. Some do all four. But, you know, it, it's about getting called and making a maximal commitment. And what I think, I used to, I wrote this book called The Road to Character, which is still I, I value, but I thought character building was individual. You build your character from the inside out, like going to the gym. Like one of my heroes in that book was Dwight Eisenhower. And when he was a kid, Eisenhower had this terrible temper. And so he punched a tree in the front yard because his mom wouldn't let him go out trick-or-treating. And he punched it so hard he rubbed all the skin off his fingers And his mom sent him to his room, let him cry for an hour, and then came up to bind his wounds and recited a verse from Proverbs, which was, he that conquereth his own soul is greater than he who taketh the city. And when he wrote his memoirs six years later, he said that was the most important conversation of his life because it taught him that he had a problem, which is passion, his anger. And we think of him as this garrulous country club kind of guy, but in reality, he was fighting hatred all the time. And he worked on that. And he just worked on conquering his own anger and hatred he would take the names of all the people he hated at night, 
write them up in, on lists and then rip them up and throw them in the garbage can as a way to purge anger. And so I, I used to think that's how you become a better person. You take your course in, you say, what's my course in? For some people it's fear, for some people it's insecurity. I'd say my course in is shallowness or people pleasing. And you try to be better at that thing. I come, I've come to a different view of character in, in this book, which is our, we don't, we're not really, we don't have enough motivation to defeat our course in by ourselves. You gotta be called by love. And so, say for example, when my eldest kid was born, we were living in Brussels, and he came out with a super low APGAR score. And when that happens, they rush him off to the ICU. And that first night, I remember thinking, you know, if he lives for only 30 minutes, will that be worth a lifetime of grief for his mother and I? And if you had asked me that before he was born, I would have said, no way. How could a creature who's not even aware of himself be worth a lifetime of grief for two adults? But after he was born, it was clear to me that his life was of infinite value. And of course it would be worth it. And so when your first kid is born, you become aware of a level of love and commitment you didn't even know existed. A friend of mine said that when her first daughter was born, she found she loved her more than evolution required, which is, I've always liked that phrase because it gets to how deeply we can care about things. And so when you find you love something that much, then you want to serve it. And maybe you feel like going out golfing, but instead you're pushing the baby stroller. You're waking up at four in the morning. And I think we become slightly less selfish people because we fall in love with something and we want to serve that. And it could be a kid, but it could be a city. It could be SMU, an institution. Uh, or it could just be a calling, a vocation. And so I think we're improved more by our loves, by the things that call us out of ourselves, than inner work. Mm-hmm. Now you say you wrote The Second Mountain to remind yourself of how to live. So how is this new book impacting your daily walk? Well, um, in many ways. I mean, writers, we get to work out our crap in public. Um, and <laughs> and um, so, you know, I was in the valley. I was single. I was unattached. And all my married friends were projecting their fantasies onto me. It's like, oh, it must be great to be single. Because I could have, I really, I, had, I thought, well, I have the, frankly, the income and the identity of a 52-year-old, but I've got the open options of a 22-year-old. I could live wherever I want. I could work wherever I want. I could marry or date whoever I want. Well, not whoever. (laughs) But within my range. Um, (laughs) uh, And what I realized is freedom sucks. I hated it. I wanted to be planted down. I badly wanted to be married. This book started as a a book on how you choose a marriage partner, (laughs) because I really wanted to understand that. Uh, and and the, over the course of the five years, I've planted myself down. Uh, I'm blissfully happily married. I got married about two years ago, and that's been that is transformative. Um, I found a community of warm places. I wanted there to be five or six places I go on a regular basis where I'm part of the family. And some of those are oh, another job that I've taken on in addition to my other job. One of those is a community of DC kids where we have dinner every Thursday night. Uh, It's a series of places that are all warm. And then, frankly, um, I came to faith. So um, that was, I talk about that in the book, that was a very surprising process to me. Uh, And it's given me uh, an ultimate allegiance that I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. We'll come to that. But one of the things you've done, you started a venture in the recent past that you call Weave, the Social Fabric Project. So what is that project, and how does it relate to the second mountain? Yeah. 
Well, I thought all the stuff I was writing, like I said before, goes to social isolation. We've got just a lot of the fabric of society is in tatters. And so uh, I said, this is one of those moments when 72,000 people die every year of opiate addiction. It's like a silent Pearl Harbor. We're all called upon to do what H.W. Bush did in the real Pearl Harbor, do something extra. Walk over to the recruiting office, do something extra. So my something extra was to start an organization. And the theory of the organization is that social isolation, social isolation is the core problem. It's being solved by local communities all around the country. But they're like Italian hilltop villages. You've got great communities here and there, but in the valley, things are not good. So how can we illuminate their example and nationalize their effect? And so the first thing we did was we spent a year traveling to, I don't know, 23 states and meeting what we call weavers, community builders, everywhere. Uh, I mentioned last night, I think, a woman I met in, uh, in New Orleans who, she is a healthcare executive. She was driving. She turned her head and saw two, ten, two little boys, 10 and 11, uh, and they looked terrified, and they held up a gun, and they shot her in the face. And this was their gang initiation ritual. They had to shoot somebody. And she recovered and decided that she was a victim, but those little kids were also victims. So she quit her jobs and works in healthcare, And now uh, works in uh, gang violence with, with gang members. And so she's just trying to weave the fabric of community together. But, and so that's like a dramatic example. Other people are weavers just because they think that's the, what you do. Ran to a woman in Florida who was helping kids out of the elementary school across the street. And we asked her, um, do you have time to volunteer? And she said, no, I have no time to volunteer. And I said to her, well, are you being paid to help kids get, leave the elementary school? And she said, no. And I said, well, what are you doing next? She said, well, I take food over to the hospital every afternoon. It's like, but you don't volunteer. No, I don't volunteer. I, she, <laughs> she just thinks that's what neighbors do. And so most of the care in, cult, in society is not part of some organization. It's just what neighbors do. And so we find those people. We, go to, we land in a place, and we say, who is trusted here? And... Um, they come out of the woodwork. We find everybody knows, and you meet these people, and they have a different value system than the mainstream culture. They're not motivated by what the economists tell us we're all motivated by, which is money, status, and in, you know power. They're motivated by a desire to be in right relation with each other, and to do some good, and mostly to serve their town. One of the questions I ask when I go to all these places is, "What's your moment of greatest? What's your spot of greatest loyalty?" Is it to your neighborhood, your town, your county, your state, your nation, or the world? And for 95% of these people, it's town. They love Dallas. They love Shreveport. They love Youngstown, Ohio. And one of the guys I've really come to love is a guy who lives in Shreveport who has something called Community Renewal International, very divided city, racially divided, economically divided. And Shreveport has like 250,000 people in it, 55,000 volunteer in his organization. And basically on every block in Shreveport, there's a host family that organizes social life for the block. And that's a way to weave community back together. So it's been, it's changed my life to be around these people. They're, I, whenever I'm away from them, I forget what they're like, and then I get back in their presence. And they're just geniuses at relationship. And I just want to be a little more like them. And, so, and my theory of social change is culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live, and the rest of us copy it. And they found a better way to live. And so I, I'm just trying to encourage other people to copy it. Getting back to the tension between the first and the second mountain, you say, uh, you 
note that the standard scenario these days in college commencement addresses is some very famous person gets up and declares to all the graduates, follow your dream. <laughs> you say in your book, that's all wrong. Why? Well, because they don't know what their dream is. Like, it's follow your passion, you do you. Like, the answers to all your problems are found inside yourself. You're 21, the you is not formed. And 80% of college students, they don't have a passion. They haven't found a passion yet. And it's the wrong question. The wrong question is to ask, what do I want from life? The right question to ask is, what is life expecting of me? What problems are out there that I can assume responsibility for? And then the second thing that is wrong about it, it assumes that we come up with our own value system ourselves. Find your own truth. And that's a hyper-individualistic belief. Maybe if your name is Aristotle, you can come up with your own truth. The rest of us need help. And so what you, the better thing is there are a lot of different moral ecologies, moral traditions that have worked on this problem. What's truth? What's the most important thing? What's a life worth living? And you should look at those traditions and see which one fits for you and then be obedient to that tradition. It could be the Jewish tradition, which believes in obedience to law and healing the world, the Christian tradition, surrender to God's grace, the rationalist tradition that believes in science. But find a tradition, and it'll tell you what the right life is. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in Germany uh, in the 30s who was sent to Auschwitz. And he, when he was sent to Auschwitz, he said, well, this really wasn't the life I was asking for. But this was the life life gave me. And so what do I do? What's my responsibility here? And he said, well, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm in Auschwitz. I should study suffering. And he found, he said, I'll do a research project. Some people in Auschwitz lasted like weeks and they just perished. Some people lived for years. And he said, what's the difference? And the people who lived for years had something they loved outside the camp they were committed to returning to. Some, it was just, I was going to write a book. Mostly it was their spouses. And they didn't even know if their spouses were alive or dead. But they were still in love with them. And Frankl spent his um, life really committed um, to his wife and talking to his wife in the camps. And he would just have these long conversations with her imaginary uh, and so he survived because he was, he was in love and committed to something else. And so he, it's what problem is out there? What, what cause do I serve? And we, we don't give our kids anything. We leave them just alone. And I, as a result, I think a lot struggle through their 20s. Well, getting to kids and commitments and the fear of commitments, you talk about how they are perceived as being chains of commitment. Chains and yet you say the chains of commitment actually set us free. Explain that. Yeah, well, we celebrate freedom, and freedom is great. Economic freedom is great. Political freedom is great. But social freedom is terrible. It just means you're, un- you're uncommitted to anything, and there you're unremembered. The uncommitted person is the unremembered person. And so a lot in life depends on what your definition of freedom is. In the first mountain, freedom is defined as absence of restraint. Nothing holds me back. I can do whatever I want. And that's one kind of freedom. But another kind of freedom is freedom of capacity. I have the freedom to play piano. Well, how do you get that freedom? You have to chain yourself to practice. And so you chain yourself down to be able to practice. Uh, And to me, it's the chains you choose actually set you free. They give you the ability to do things. And this was a, in the Christian tradition, this is a big debate. And we're not free to just to do whatever we want. We're free to be good by following God's commands. And so it, so much of your life depends on what your definition of freedom is. Mm-hmm. 
Now, one of the four commitments is vocation. We think of vocation, avocation. Most people in this audience have a job in the workplace. And you say that the rungs in the professional ladder determine your schedule and life course. And people with control over how and when you climb those rungs typically don't value the employees having a deep, fulfilling life. The boss in most companies just wants productivity, period. So they can have deep, fulfilling lives. Right. So pretend you're the leader of a company or a law firm or a Cox School of Business. What do you do to have the members of your team have a more fulfilling life and feel like they're more whole-souled about themselves and their jobs? Now I'm going to quote a better book than mine, which is a book my wife came out with about a month ago. And it's about which organizations are thick and which are thin. This book is really about individual change. My wife's book is about how organizations nurture a certain atmosphere where change can happen. And at the core of her book, she went around to different organizations to find which organizations really transform lives. And some of them are private companies, some are colleges, some are nonprofits. My favorite example in her book is this amazing moving company in, in Salt Lake City where they take guys out of prison, men and women out of prison, who've been there for 25 years or more. They put them in a, a home and they make them work for a moving company. And a lot of these uh, guys were in jail for burglary. So the slogan is, we used to take it out your window, now we take it out your door. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, the, uh, to be around, I've, she's introduced me to some of these people. Their lives are transformed. These are the most upright, pers- morally upright people I've ever met. They've got tattoos all over their faces. But this place breaks you down. They put you on a bench when you get there, and they scream at you. They say, do you love your kids? And the person says, yes, I love your kids. No, you don't. If you love your kids, you wouldn't be in jail. You wouldn't be living that life. You hate your kids. And they break you down, and they build you up. And it's an amazing transformative organization. And what she notices in the, in the companies and in the organizations that really transform lives, she has what she calls 16 questions, 16 questions to ask uh, about your company. One is telos. Does everybody in the organization know what the mission of the organization is, and does every single person, regardless of level, know their role in that mission? Is there joy in the house? Is there there just a sense of joy and giving? Is there a sense that you can combine radical honesty with radical love? Do people feel they can be completely honest? Is there generativity? When people leave the organization, do they take the culture with them and try to replicate that culture wherever they go? And so she's got these 16 questions that are very useful to use uh, if you want to create an organization that really transforms lives. And frankly, it's useful because there are a lot of boomers who are CEOs of companies, and there are a lot of millennials who come into work wanting to bring their whole self to work, and they want a life with moral passion in the company. And a lot of millennials are like, how do I give them that? And this book really answers that question. Mm -hmm. The Fabric of Character. Her name is Ann Snyder. Highly recommend it, better than mine. Yeah, I bought it on Amazon this morning. It's right there. Now, you talk about, again, this transition from the first to the second mountain about how when setbacks hit someone, typically you fall into a valley and there's some wandering in the wilderness. And some people find the way to suffer their way to wisdom. So talk about that process in the valley and going deeper and and how that leads to suffering your way to wisdom. Yeah, so one of, like, greatest writer in history of earth maybe was leo tolstoy 
And he had a pretty good first mountain. Wrote War and Peace, Anna Karenina. He was the greatest writer in history. He knew it. Uh, and two things happened to him. His brother died, and he couldn't explain why he lived or died. And then he went and saw a beheading, an execution in Paris, and he said, whatever men say, that was wrong. Beheadings are wrong. And so he said, well, maybe what matters is not reputation, what people think of me. Maybe what matters is eternal truth. And so that put him into crisis, because he'd lived for reputation and to be a perfectionist. And so he took away all the guns away from him. He took away all ropes because he was on the verge of suicide. And he was in the valley. And a couple of things happened in the valley. And I say this, some people get broken and some people get broken open. People who get broken are fearful of the pain. They cover themselves over and they get smaller and angrier and more resentful. And they tend to lash out. Now, there's a saying I came across, pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. They hurt and they want to hurt other people. Uh, but other people get broken open and they, they become more vulnerable. They fall into the depths of themselves. And I, last night I quoted a theologian, Paul Tillich, who said, when you're, what suffering does, it's an, it interrupts your life. Whether it's grief over the loss of a loved one or something you screwed up yourself, it interrupts your life and it reminds you you're not the person you thought you were. It carves through what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul and reveals a cavity below, and then it carves through that floor and reveals a cavity below that. And you just see deeper into yourself. And the things you see are not the ego, but you see your heart, the desire just to be with other people, uh, and your soul, your yearning to be a good person. And so the bad, the sort of shallow desires of the ego are replaced by the deeper and stronger desires of the heart and soul. And when you found those desires, then you're ready for the second life. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned... Uh the dark side of the, the first mountain is, can lead to what's called tribalism, us versus them, and how that's the dark side of community. Well, the United States for the last several years, particularly during the last three presidency, has been an us versus them society. So do you have any reason to hope that your book is going to impact the leaders of the tribes? <laughs> you know, I used to think when I would write a column that the president would call me and say, you know, I had policy X, but then I read your brilliant column. And that never happens. Um, when you write a column or you write a book, you don't tell people what to think. You provide a context in which they can think. And so you're just trying to get people to go through their own process and maybe name a few things that, that sort of is inchoate in their minds. Uh, and, you, you know, as I say, you're just trying to work out your crap in public. Uh, and uh, Kafka said... A book should be an, an axe for the frozen sea inside of us. And so you just try to chop up what we take for granted. Uh, and tribalism, my fear, we were in this 1950s culture, we're all in this together, very communal. Then we shifted to the 1960s, 1980s culture, I'm free to be myself. And we've sort of run out the string on that one. And my fear is, in response, we're going to go to revert to tribe. And I was a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in the early 90s. uh, And I covered nothing but good news. I covered the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Soviet Union, the unification of Europe, Mandela coming out of prison in South Africa, the Oslo peace process. It was just great. Borders were coming down. People were coming together. And then at the end, I covered one event that I barely paid attention to, um, which was the Yugoslav Civil War. 
the Bosnians and the Serbs, Milosevic and all that. And in retrospect, that event was the most important event I covered because the ensuing 25 years have been years of democratic retreat, rise of ethnic nationalism, and rise of authoritarianism all around the world. And so we're in an era where people respond to their loneliness by reverting to tribe. And tribe seems like community, it's bonding, but it's not bonding based on mutual affection for something, it's bonding based on common hatred of something, common hatred of some other. And so in the, in the Bible, the, the universe starts with the Garden of Eden. It starts with a, an abundance mentality, there's enough for all of us. Tribalism is based on a scarcity mentality. There's not enough for all of us. We're in a zero-sum combat with other groups, and we have to fight, we have to struggle, it's all about distrust, we have to build barriers. And that is now a rising force in our society. And if we go to an era of revert to tribe, it will be an ugly century. And I'm sort of afraid of that. And one of the things I do in the book is try to combat that. Mm -hmm. Now you say an essential part of moving to the second mountain is that the ego self must die. That will allow the heart and soul to have necessary space to take control. Now, given that we're all flawed, sinful human beings, isn't deflating the ego a battle that doesn't end? Or do you think that once someone succeeds in killing his ego, it never comes back? I have met people who have surpassed their ego. Uh, Mother Teresa, you know, you meet these people. They, and I, She's famous, but they really think about others. Uh, that is not me and not most people. I mean, if I had defeated my ego, I wrote a whole book on... Um, surpassing, you know, the shallow desires of the ego, I still check my Amazon ranking. Like, <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. But, you know, I think the thing that uh, does it is, is loving commitments to a company. Uh, a lot of people defeat their ego because they just love the, the mission of their company. And if it, you know, if it, you know, in the sports, some players sit on the bench. And if they love their company enough, they sit on the bench. Some teachers find more joy in their, their students. In marriage, marriage is a thing that calls on the daily defeat of the ego if it's going to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, I quote in here the book by Tim and Kathy Keller that they say about two years into marriage, you discover that the person who was completely perfect when you married them is actually kind of selfish. And as you're making this discovery about her, she's making this discovery about you. And so you have a choice. You can either have a truce marriage where you decide not to tackle the selfishness, or you can have a covenantal marriage where you decide we're going to deal with the selfishness, but I'm not going to deal with your selfishness. I'm going to realize, actually, the core problem in our marriage is my own selfishness. It's the only selfishness I can really control. And the Kellers say if you have two people who have decided their own selfishness is the core problem in a marriage, then you have, have the makings of a good marriage. And then there's other advice in the book, which is all about defeating the ego and building up the other. Um, there's just on marriage to stay on that subject. Sometimes you just have to go to bed. They say don't go to bed mad. Sometimes go to bed. You're tired. Go to bed. It'll seem a lot better in the morning. Another thing is um, boast about your spouse and have them overhear you boasting. It shows the pride. If you're going to bitch to one of the moms, bitch to his mom, not your own mom, about him. Because his mom will forgive him and your own mom never will. <laughs> and so there's just like, that's the thing. Like, it's easy to say we should live for relationship. But actually living it out is really hard and takes skills and take knowledge. And so I tried to 
absorb some of the knowledge that I read and pass it along. Mm-hmm. Now, you say that consciousness is like a snowball sitting on top of an iceberg with our unconsciousness being the iceberg. So with each book that you research and write and reflect on, does your snowball on top get bigger and the <laughs> iceberg smaller? No, I get more respect for the iceberg. Uh, somebody said our conscious mind is like a, a, um, an, a boy riding an elephant. Most of our decision-making is unconscious. So just a few examples. Somebody did a, um, a study of 2.5 billion putts, million putts on the PGA Tour, and golfers from all distances and all conditions putt more accurately when putting for par than when putting for birdie. And that's because they fear the failure of the bogey more than they desire the success of the birdie. We fear failure more than we desire success. Uh, another example, which is delightful, but I, I'm afraid it won't replicate, is that people named Dennis are disproportionately likely to uh, go into dentistry. Uh, and people named Lawrence are slightly more likely than others to go into law. Uh, that's why my, my daughter's named President of the United States, Brooks. Uh, and so we have all these slight biases that are all unconscious. Uh, and you just have to respect that process that you're, and they are, they're, they're emotion mm-hmm. and their intuition. And you just have to respect what's going on, that your conscious brain is riding on a big sea of instinct. Mm-hmm. Now we're coming to the part that I know Jim Dennison and another want to hear about, and that's your faith journey and the very transparent account of your faith journey. You say that the train of life has now taken you to a different country to where you're now a religious person, an amphibian with one foot in the water and one on land tied to both Judaism and Christianity. So how has your life changed since you moved to a different country? Uh, well, that's, that's a, well, your whole orientation changes. Uh, first, on, just on the coming to faith, it was like um, I was sitting in pizza one day and suddenly Jesus appeared across the table and told me he was God. No, that didn't happen. (laughs) It was like the most boring, gradual, incremental process. And it was, um, a friend of mine put it well, it said, my previous categories of life were not adequate to those experiences that I was having. And so suddenly, for example, I, I, I do stories, and I was in Penn Station one day, uh, and the stories I do in journalism, it didn't make sense to me that the people I was writing about who I cared about so much were just sacks full of genetic material. They seemed to have souls. And they had some piece of them that had no size, weight, color, or shape, but gave them infinite value and dignity. And I was in Penn Station, and I looked at all these people. You usually feel like an ant in an anthill in Penn Station in New York. Uh, but I said, all these people have souls. They're all... Their souls yearning in them, their souls getting sanctified them, their souls getting degraded in them. They're all figures of infinite value and dignity. C.S. Lewis writes at one point that if we had never met a human being and we met one, we would find they are creatures we, we would be inclined to worship because each human being is so incredible. And so when he became aware of the concept of souls, then there were just certain moments where life spilled outside of my, its boundaries and it seemed like there was something non-material that seemed real. And so I gradually had that sense that there was not only the material story, but there's the understory, which is a spiritual story. And I describe it like you're on a train, and you're traveling, and everyone's sitting next to you on the train, everything seemed normal. 
But you look outside the window and you realize you've traveled a long way. There's a lot of ground behind you. And you suddenly realize, well, I'm not an atheist anymore. I'm not even an agnostic. I believe my concept of God is the ground of being. Not so much a white guy up in the stair, up in the sky, but just an eternal, that the universe is created as being created still. And that there is a, a ground of care and love for us that is the foundation on which everything else rests and is the force that flows through us. And so that just came to seem uh, real to me. And I have to say, then I found a bunch of... When you are making this process and you're asking all your friends about it, they start sending you books. So I got about 300 books within a six-month period, (laughs) only 100 of which were Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And... Um, but I really resonated there a friend of mine who wrote a beautiful book called My Bright Abyss called Chris Wyman who's a poet at Yale and he said faith is not a constant process it's having these moments that seem transcendent and then they go away but you try to stay faithful to those moments and Frederick Buechner is a writer a very great Christian writer and he said um, he was an atheist he was walking down Madison Avenue and he heard a sermon he walked into a church and it was about the coronation of Christ and the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And he said, uh, when Christ was coronated, he was coronated to great laughter. And Beekman says, Beekner says, when you get up in the morning, you ask yourself, can I believe it all again? And if you say yes 10 days out of 10, you're probably pulling the wool over your own eyes. But you should say yes. And saying no, I don't believe it today, is important because it proves you're human. But if you can believe it two days out of ten, then on those two days you should do it with great joy and great laughter. And so the people who embrace faith through doubt and with awe over the mystery of it are the ones I find most compelling. And there are a lot of people who I meet them and it's like, yeah, I didn't know what to order. I prayed God. God told me to order the cheeseburger, not the salmon. I don't really resonate with that. But um, the mystery... Uh, beyond understanding, but the felt presence of God strikes me as real. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's safe to say that uh, you've moved into the second mountain mode. You've written your way to a, a new life. And Viktor Frankl, who you mentioned, said he started asking himself the question, what is life asking of me? So, David, you're at the top professionally. You've had a surge emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Going forward, what do you think life is asking of you? To go back to hedonism and just have a good time. <laughs> um, you know, I, first of all, for believers, the answer is clear. You want to be, you want your soul to be more sanctified. I mean, there's a pattern out there for us to follow, and and you want to be a better follower of that pattern. Uh, more prosaically, in my career, um, I think I have two purposes. One is I think our our public conversation has been um, over-politicized and under-moralized. We talk too much about every poll, MSNBC and Fox, but the things that really matter in life are how do you do forgiveness? How do you approach life with gratitude? How do you think about the Almighty? How do you think about your purpose? And we don't talk about that enough. So I'm just trying to shift the public culture a little over in that direction. And second, um, I politically, I believe in a worldview that is half Edmund Burke and half Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and it's sort of a moderate Republican 
if you know American history, the Whig Party. Uh, it's what I believe in. I like to, there are six of us. Um, so um, I, I like to promote that. And then, I mean, I'm going through in my family life, you know, the, they, the, the calls to be a good parent and a good husband to my wife. Uh, and the, the daily dramas of that never go away. I mean, my daughter is in, uh, loves hockey, teaches hockey for the Anaheim Ducks, but is a gigantic Washington Capitals fan. So we stayed up last night texting as the Capitals lost a seventh game overtime. And you're still parenting at that level. Uh, and even though she's thousands of miles away, uh, and family life never goes away and never gets easy. Uh, and then I'm trying to think I've lost my own oh, community. I, I would like to lift up these weavers so that more people, so that we can shift norms in this country. And so that we shift norms of what it means to be a good neighbor. And if everybody in the country did a little community work, just invited their neighbors over or reached across difference and had a relationship once a month with somebody unlike themselves, this would be a very different country. So the weave work is trying to do that. Mm-hmm. We have time for some questions from the audience. You may have a question. Of... The mayor, we're so honored to have Mayor Mike Rawlings here. Mike, would you stand up so that everybody can hear you? You know, one of the issues you talked about community uh, for a bunch of the, uh, the, the America, they felt left out. For sure. How do we wrestle through this problem in a moralistic way? Uh, yeah. The whole issue of exclusion, race, right. folks that were not part of the mainstream. Right. And that's, you know, first let me say the happiest people I know are people who've left Congress and become mayors. <laughs> the most unhappy people I know are people who were mayors and moved to Congress. So you may have you're on the right track. Don't leave. Um, the problem with um, the 1950s culture was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says this. It was a guest house culture. This was basically a white Protestant country. And other people could stay here, but they were just guests. Uh, and they, were, they had to behave by the rules and they were of some lesser status. And so that, that injustice became too strong. And so they um, changed the culture, and then we became a hotel culture, where everybody had their own individual room, but there was no sense of being part of the common project. And so he says, we've got to move to a country where we build a home together. He points out that in Genesis, the creation of the universe is covered in nine verses. In Exodus, the creation of the tabernacle is covered in hundreds and hundreds of verses. Why is that? Because God was taking a very diverse group of Israelites and turning them into a people. And a people has two things in common. One, a common story, and two, a common project they build together. And so we have to now build a common home that includes all our people and that tells everyone's story, including the stories of those who were left out. And I will say I've... I've been around the country in this weaver work. And in the day, we meet with all the weavers and at their own place of work, and it's always upbeat. At night, we bring 25 or so together. Um, and uh, the mood sometimes turns sulfurically angry at the level of racial injustice and the route of injustice and division in society. And people, we're at a make-or-break moment uh, where we either actually do include everybody's stories. We acknowledge everybody's presence in this country, and we show dignity and respect. 
And I wrote a column, which a lot of people in the room may disagree with, where I changed my mind on reparations. And I changed my mind because I think we're at that rake or rake moment, and we shouldn't think about reparations as an act of guilt or white guilt. We should do it as a sign of dignity and respect for the injustice that people have borne. And reaching out in that dignity and respect and telling a common story is so urgent. We're about to become a minority-majority country. It's a very hard thing to do. And so extra measures have to be taken to reach across that divide. Um, and uh, as a town, one of the things I, I've come to appreciate is the neighborhood is the unit of change. We used to think um, that you change each individual starfish story, you know that starfish story? A friend of mine in Shreveport says, you can't only clean the part of the pool you're swimming in. You gotta clean the whole pool. You gotta set up norms for the whole pool. And so you have to bring common people together retell the story, and then get them working on common projects. And I'm an admirer of, frankly, the, when the Puritans came over here, they created a thing called the, the Mayflower Compact. And I sometimes think towns should say, let's get all our people together. We're going to create a compact. This is what we're going to do in the next five years, and we're going to build this together. This is our problem. Uh, and doing that, inviting people, you know, change happens when you invite people who used to be outside the room, inside the room, and you have a different conversation. And it's a very hard job, which you were in charge of. So thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. Any other? Yes, sir. Would you stand up? And there's Keith. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Brooks, can you talk just a little bit about uh, conservatism, uh, your, uh, your brand or philosophy, um, and, and how it relates to contemporary uh, definitions of conservatism? Yeah. You spoke about it a bit last night with Sir yeah. Evan Burke and, and right. Hamilton. Yeah, so just to repeat, start off there a little. My conservative hero was uh, Edmund Burke, who wrote Reflections on the Revolution of France, who said, life is really complicated. Be careful how you do change, because you won't understand everything you're going to do. I was a young reporter in Chicago. I was a super lefty socialist. I was a reporter in Chicago. I covered something called the Robert Taylor Homes and Cabrini Green, and they were very bad projects. And the people who built them thought they were doing good. They tore down all these old what they thought were slums, and put up these brick buildings. And, but when they tore down the slums, they tore out the social fabric, all the patterns of mutual aid people were doing for each other. And the, the projects had nothing, none of that. So life got material or better, but socially worse. And pretty soon the gangs took over, and you had to pay a dollar to even walk in the elevator. Uh, and so I saw a living example of people not understanding how complex society is. And so I think change could be constant, but incremental and gradual and humble. Humility is my key virtue here. In politics, Thucydides says this. In politics, the lows are lower than the highs are high. Meaning, when a politician does something bad, really bad things happen. When they do something good, some moderate progress. (laughs) So be careful. Uh, And then my other hero is Alexander Hamilton, who, as I said last night, is a Puerto Rican hip-hop star from the Heights. Um, uh, <laughs> um, and, but he, he believed that, that government should be limited but energetic to help poor boys and girls rise and succeed and become capitalists. And so that's the dynamism of America. And so that's my philosophy, and uh, it's, um, it's not really not represented by conservatism now. I would say there's a lot of humility. Now, I wrote a about humility in 2015, and then we had the 2016 election. I thought, oh, that worked. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, Peggy. Or Hannah. Uh, I would imagine this book is very compelling for people who have reached the top of the first mountain and found it empty. So they say, oh, there's hope. We can go to the second mountain. I'm at the beginning of my career and my climb and the start of my family. So two questions. One, what have you learned about people who just started at the second mountain and ignored the first one altogether? And two, what would you say to my generation who's really starting the climb thinking, I know and I believe that true fulfillment will be at the second mountain, but the first one looks so good. <laughs> well, first of all, I happen to know you went to Wheaton. <laughs> and my wife went to Wheaton. And she did her second mountain first. Because I, I go to a lot of colleges and I talk about this stuff. And when I'm at a secular school, frankly, um, when I talk about this stuff about the soul and grace, and they're like, wow, this stuff's amazing. And when I go to a place like Wheaton, they're like, yeah, we talk about this every day. <laughs> So I have to up my game. Uh, and so, in fact, my problem with Wheaton and some of the Christian colleges is they don't do enough career planning. And they leave people sort of unprepared for that. And I, I tell them, would it kill you to be clever like one day a week? Uh, like, <laughs> and, but I would say I don't think there's a moment where your, your spiritual longings and moral longings and relational longings are not there. My students at Yale... Um, they're filled, that one of them said, we're so hungry. And they're really good at career stuff they got into Yale. But they're so hungry for spiritual food. And I don't think, I mean, if you go into life early on and say, well, what, I'm not going to just have a career. I'm going to have a vocation. You can skip the first mountain and you can skip some of the valleys. And if you think marriage is not going to be a, it's not just going to be a contract between two free agents, it's going to be a covenant. You can have a good marriage right away. And so uh, it's not like you have to go through the first mountain. Uh, and basically the, the mountain metaphor, it's just a metaphor for a bad value system that is very common in our culture and a metaphor for a good, a better value system that is countercultural to our culture. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, my last book, Road to Character, I went to Wheaton, took it to a bunch of professors, and it was the best session I had because all the other sessions were at other universities where philosophy and morality were academic subjects. But there are some people in some schools and some universities, it's applied. It's actually how do you have a good life, and that's an everyday subject. And weirdly, in a lot of places, that's not an everyday subject. At where I teach, it's, it's not an everyday subject. We, we have academic disciplines, and the professors think it's not my job to tell them how to live. I, I know how to do astrophysics. And I, that's why I give a course. Stan McChrystal gives a course. We subject, and the students are hungry for it. There's one course on positive psychology that now has the enrollment of 25% of the student body in one class. Mm. Because it's the people want that. And they love my course. A, they call it therapy with Brooks because we talk about their crap. But my best moment came at the end of one course where one of my students, a really good student, he was a Rhodes Scholar and everything, he said to me, your class has made me a lot sadder. And that was like a win. That was good. Because it's better to be sadder having high desires than to be completely complacent with low desires. Mm-hmm. And so if you went to Wheaton, you can do both mountains at once. <laughs> For our last question, Peggy, did you have a question? Stand up, please, and let's get the microphone to Peggy. 
I'm not sure how to ask this question. Um, when you talk about tribalism, the evangelical church, you've written some about it, uh, has become pretty tribal. And as Tim Keller would say, the liberal church and the conservative church has become more influenced by political tribalism unknowingly, unconsciously, than it has influenced the culture. So my question is something like this. Is it too late for a vibrant church movement to influence, to go against the grain and influence the culture in the same way that the first century church might have done it? Or have we missed that train? Yeah, Yeah, coming on this journey, I I realized that church and people in the church erected walls that made it harder to take the journey, and they, but they also built ramps that made it easier. And so some of the walls were like the people who wanted to convert me just to win one for the team. The other, another wall was um, invasive care. God has put it in my heart to delve deeply into your life, which I know nothing about and tell you what to do. There's a lot of that. Um, and then there's a, a wall that comes from a combination of spiritual superiority complex combined with an intellectual inferiority complex, where I'm better than you, but I'm not really that intellectual, and I'm not going to try to be that intellectual because uh, we just want to be kind to each other. Uh, some of the ramps are fervent faith, visible faith. Some of the ramps are prayer. I'm a, still a terrible prayer. I'm like a literary critic to my own prayer. Like, uh, this one is rambling, losing coherence. Uh, <laughs> um, um, and then just, uh, uh, and then the best is just, I mean, good Christians and good Jews are the best argument for the faith. And I met so many people. One of the guys who was with me in life, he died recently, was a guy named Wes who was a camp counselor with me and then worked with me at this camp where I was for 15 years. And he just radiated joy. He couldn't get done a sentence because he was so delighted by life. He would whistle and pop and just exude. And he became an Episcopal priest, and he worked with victims of domestic violence, went to Honduras, saw the worst in life, but he just radiated joy. Uh, And once, when I was young, I was 18, he turned to me, and he was still a man of fervent faith. He said, you're going to be a success one day. And at the time, I took it as a praise. Oh, he thinks I'm going to be a success. But now, later, I saw it was a warning that he was operating by a different value system and a better value system. Uh, And so those examples were great. I think one of the things that surprised me about the church recently is, uh, I think my wife says, evangelical turned from an adjective to a noun. I mean, it used to be a way of being faithful and spreading the faith. Then it became a tribe. And the thing I... um, Regret about it is a sense of siege mentality. They're about to destroy us. And coming from a Jewish background, I'm like, we're 2% of the population. You guys are like at least 50. You guys are under no threat here. And, and so I think the siege mentality excuses any bad behavior and says we got to do what we got to do, and the ends justify the means. And I miss that part of the gospel. Uh, and so I, I think the, the more, I mean, you answer hate with love. It's pretty clear. And answering hate with hate is, A, a bad strategy for yourself and a bad strategy politically. And I'm afraid um, some people in the church have, have done that out of a sense of siege mentality. Um, but to me, it's, in a, 
and, and like to go back to Wheaton one second, a lot of people feel besieged. A lot of church communities feel besieged. But I live in a secular culture that's hungry for spiritual food. And I say, you guys have the, have the answer. You have the great resource. You have what everybody else wants. How can you feel besieged when the country is thirsting for this? Thirsting for what you have, and all you have to do is share it in a genuine way. And um, I'm afraid that's not happening a lot of the time. And, um, you know, serving the least amongst us is a very attractive message <laughs> and very needed right now. That's all I'd say on that. I promised David's publisher that he would be out the door at 9 so he can catch an airplane. But before he leaves, let's give him a great round of applause. David Brooks is not only the country's leading political commentator, he's now become the country's leading philosopher. His approach toward finding long-term fulfillment and purpose in life boils down to focusing on others in ever-thickening relationships instead of focusing on ourselves. You can find David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast Make sure you catch all my podcasts on Spotify, SoundCloud, the Washington Independent Review of Books, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, remember the words of my old friend Bobby Bregan, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.